It's Second Opinions Week on the 5 by when each reviewer takes another look at a game previously reviewed on the 5 by Nice how that works out. In this episode, Ruth gives a second chance to second chance. I'm all over the map in Concordia. Meeple Lady has stacks of opinions on number 9. And Christy gets seasonal with Dead of Winter. But first, John escapes again in Escape Plan. I'm going to call it Escape Plan 2, The Escapening. It's been three days since the police made you and your crew for that big heist that was supposed to be your last. You and your former heist mates are on the lam, 23 Skidoo. You're Paul McCartney and Wings, circa 1973. All that stands between you and sipping Bahama Mamas on the beach is a city full of cops. A city full of cops and your table mates. You glance around the table as the final round begins and you try to figure out who will be the first to make their escape. The board is littered with map tiles, cubes, and way too many cops. You take a deep breath and one last look at your escape plan. Screw it, you're getting out first. Hi, I'm John Gonzalez and I'll be taking a look at Escape Plan, a Vitala Serta game with art by Ian O'Toole. Escape Plan was reviewed in episode 59 of the 5 by by the incomparable Meeple Lady. For our second opinions episode, I thought I'd take a look at the solo mode that's included in the box. Vitala Serta is known for designing heavy Euro games that are strongly thematic, beautifully produced, and big boxed. Lisboa, Vinos, and the Gallerist tackle the rebuilding of a city, running a vineyard, and running an art gallery, respectively. So naturally, his latest game takes on as its theme a botched bank heist. In Escape Plan, 1-5 players take on the roles of post-heist bank robbers. The money has been divided, invested, laundered, and is ready to be harvested like ripe, juicy grapes. Sorry, I'm thinking of a different Lacerda game. During the course of three days, or rounds, players build and make their way across the city map collecting income or liquidating their businesses for endgame scoring. Each player starts off with their own personal escape plan card that lays out not only where their money has been stashed, but whether it can be withdrawn from the business as income, or to be left there to be scored at the end of the game. Certain actions increase players' notoriety levels, which in turn changes the actual turn order. Once a player crosses one of three notoriety thresholds, players with less notoriety can move a police officer token closer to the offending player. The game ends once all the players have escaped, or at the conclusion of the third day. The player who escapes with the most money wins. Meeple Lady's assessment that escape plan shines best when players are actively trying to get law enforcement meeples in each other's way is spot on. So, what happens when the human element is removed and you're playing solo? The solo mode in Escape Plan embellishes on the two-player mode, which involves the addition of a third player that is partially controlled via a deck of cards. Police Inspector Sandra is that third player, and her main function in the game is to narrow down player choice by visiting businesses and potentially closing them down. At all player counts, when a business is visited by a certain number of players, that business is closed and can only be accessed by obtaining a key from the convenience store locations. The Inspector Sandra bot adds more pressure to an already tense game, but you're not really competing against her like you would with a real opponent, as she doesn't score any points throughout the course of the game. For the solo mode in Escape Plan, the player will use Inspector Sandra and another bot, the Corrupt Lieutenant Costa. During the bot's turns, the player draws cards from the Inspector Sandra and Lieutenant Costa decks and carries out the listed actions. I appreciate the cards for their elegant and terse icon-based instructions. On the card, it tells you whether the bot gains or loses notoriety, what location they will visit, and what cards and tiles they are to discard or gain. Once a location has been visited by the bot, that card is removed, meaning that they will never return to the same location twice. This is a nice touch that lets players plan around the card draw. If the card you drew has a location that's not yet on the board, well, you're not off the hook. You keep drawing cards until you draw a suitable location. Unused cards are shuffled back into the deck 
Coastal works in a similar manner, only moving to a location if the player is there or in an adjacent location. The way the system works is that you're always likely to find yourself being chased across the board by Inspector Sandra or Lieutenant Costa. Just like Sandra, the Lieutenant is able to visit safe houses and businesses. The bad Lieutenant scores points at the end of the game based on how many businesses and safe houses he's visited and for any cards and locker tiles he's collected. The solo mode in Escape Plan is pretty intense and offers an interesting challenge. The two decks that govern the bots actions ensure that a solo game is manageable and that you're not expending too much brain power following complicated bot routines and procedures. I found the solo game to be less difficult than playing with human players. Laying out the city tiles at the beginning of each day, usually a task done in turn order by all players, is relegated to the solo player, so you're able to lay out the map in a way that is beneficial to yourself. During one game I managed to create a long waterway which counted as one space and I was able to move through a large section of the map with minimal movement cost. Also, if Sandra and Lieutenant Costa gain too much notoriety and you have less, you get to move police officers toward them. This works to your benefit and if you keep your notoriety low throughout the game, you can pretty much clear a path to the exit by day 3. Overall, the solo mode in Vitalisertus Escape Plan retains some of the tense tactical decision space provided by the game's higher player counts, but under the right circumstances you can pretty much run the board and set yourself up to make a big score. I've played the game at all player counts and find that it works best at 3 or 4 players. That's not to say the solo and 2 player modes aren't great, but they're just not the main attraction. As it is, they're fun alternatives if you already have access to the game. Escape Plan is a luxury item in a luxury hobby. The presentation and quality of the game is commensurate with its price tag and I strongly recommend it at the higher player counts. But if you're looking to Escape Plan for a primarily solo experience, then I hope you've recently made your own big score and are flush with cash. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. Five by listeners, it's Ruth here talking about a game first covered by Christy back in episode 62. She had talked about Second Chance, Uvi Rosenberg's flip and fill polyominal game published by Edition Spielweis and Stronghold Games. In that segment, she compared the game to Bud Light Lime, delicious in the right setting but downright undesirable in others. And while I can see her overall point, there were a couple of things on which we differed. So I figured I'd take the opportunity of her second opinion episode to give my thoughts on this light, refreshing 2019 release. I first picked up Second Chance while visiting Portland for the excellent Stumptown Game Summit, and this is one impulse souvenir I haven't regretted. As Christy explained, gameplay is extremely simple. Each player gets a sheet with a 9x9 grid and a different 8-square starting shape to fill in wherever they want as long as it covers the central square of the grid. Then cards are flipped two at a time, with each player having to pick the shape shown on one of the cards to draw on their grid. The goal is to cover as much area as possible before either the deck runs out or the player finds himself unable to draw either of the displayed shapes. When the latter situation occurs, however, the player gets a titular second chance. A card is flipped just for them, and if they can make it fit, then they stay in. Otherwise, they're out of the game. The winner is whoever has the lowest number of empty squares on their sheet, once everybody, or the deck, has gone out. Christy mentioned that she didn't feel player count affected the game, but I honestly think the player count does make quite a difference in second chance, entirely due to that mechanic. The more players you have, then the more times extra cards are flipped for them, running the deck out and thus shortening the game. 
It also adds a ton of tension, as each time a second chance card flips, players watch warily, hoping the shape they need and were waiting on isn't about to be stolen from them. More than once, I've watched a player get the shape I was wanting to fill in a particular gap, simultaneously keeping them in the game and making my progress in the game harder. It adds a slight aspect of player interaction to the game without any take that, so it keeps the multiplayer experience less solitarish, and is part of why I find the game works well alongside bar or coffee shop drinks and conversation. Everyone can easily split their attention between the game and the topic at hand without losing the thread of either, which is a pretty valuable type of game to have at hand. And then there's Second Chance Solo, which for me offers a very meditative experience of doodling but with roles. I can unhurriedly enjoy the experience, being satisfied when I manage to place a particularly tricky shape or just if I did well overall. This is especially augmented when playing with my friend T's house role, that all shapes must be filled in a unique way. When I'm settled down with a podcast, plenty of colored pencils, and second chance, I'm able to relax and draw without the pressure of producing something important. I'm just filling in shapes to earn a good score. This is what makes the game in my mind less of an insubstantial Bud Light Lime, and more of a good gin and tonic. It's perfect for a lazy day or late evening relaxing, whether alone or with friends, but it is capable of some nuance when mixed in the right setting, say with friends who also track the number of single squares left, and join you in cursing the player who somehow got the last one on their second chance. At around $15, I found Second Chance well worth the price to me. The small, easily transported box contains mini cards and a thick pad of double-sided player sheets, allowing for plenty of game sessions before I have to resort to laminating or printing more. Included in the box are three reference cards showing the breakdown of shapes in the deck, which are very useful. These shapes are also displayed on the inside of the box, as pointed out in the rolls, but that's not really a convenient reference. The quality of everything you get is good, and artist Max Prentice's pretty botanical patterns that border the sheets and fill the card shapes are a pleasant touch for what is a themeless abstract game. Second Chance is a perfect hanging out with friends game. I'm unlikely to bring it out at an actual game night because that's when I want to enjoy a heavier thinker experience, although I have grabbed it for the end of the night. As something to play at the local bar before trivia starts, it's a wonderful game. I can grab the cards, sheets, and a pouch of colored pencils as a pretty portable package, and then I watch a bunch of my friends chat over some beers while doodling. At as little as 10 to 15 minutes, or as long to play as people want to spend drawing beautiful patterns, Second Chance is the ideal way for up to six players to simply relax and enjoy a game. Maybe next time I see Christy at a convention, I'll bring along Bud Light Lime for her, mix myself a gin drink, and we can catch up over some Second Chance. It's hard to believe Concordia came out just six years ago. It seems much older. It might be the long, thin box that makes me expect to see it stacked on the shelf with old Parker Brothers games. Or maybe it's the way Concordia feels like a pillar of board game design. I'm not sure why I see Concordia as a venerable old game, but in reality it was published in 2013, just a few years ago. I have the Rio Grande edition, and it's also available from P.D. Verlag in Germany. I'm not going to get into the rules in too much detail, as Lindsay covered the rules quite well in her excellent review in episode 12. So if you want to learn more of the ins and outs of how to play Concordia, go back to episode 12 and check out Lindsay's review. And pardon me for a personal note here, but Lindsay, I miss your voice on the 5 by and I miss you. Okay, so as I said, I'm not getting into the rules in too much detail, but I do have to comment on Concordia's rulebook. 
It's just four easy-to-read pages, plus a setup sheet. I do wish they used inclusive pronouns in the rulebook rather than he, him throughout. But still, it's impressive how much planning, how many interesting decisions, how much game they got into this tiny little rulebook. Concordia seems so simple, but there's so much to it. Building out your network is so fun. Moving the little ships and people across the map and establishing yourself in more and more cities. Producing goods adds a small dash of semi-co-op to Concordia, since you produce in an entire province, benefiting everyone who's established in that province. Diplomacy allows you to repeat any action another player has just taken, a fascinating wrinkle in simple deck building. Figuring out when someone else is about to play an action you need so you can use your diplomat and save that card for later is immensely satisfying. Trade is essential, but the limitation that only two resources can be involved in a single trade means you have to plan carefully when trading goods and often can't quite get what you need from a trade. That feeling of being just short of what you need is a constant in Concordia. There's always so much you want to do, and somehow there's always almost enough actions to do it. Board games can have good frustration and bad frustration, and Concordia is overflowing with good frustration. I want to do this and this and also that, but I really need to get over here before she does, because I can't afford to colonize that city if there's someone else there already, and I really need to be there. And I want to do all these things right now. You feel that pressure on every turn. Traveling the map and trading for goods is fun and is how you spend most of your time in Concordia, but deck building is the real center of the game. The starting deck gives you just enough to get started, and in those early rounds, you go through your deck so quickly. Buying cards allows you to do more before getting your cards back and get additional or improved abilities. And of course, the most important part of the deck building is scoring. Each scoring criterion, how many provinces you're in, how many goods you produce, and so on, is multiplied by how many of that type of card you have. The friend who taught me to play Concordia put it like this. He waved his hand over the map and said, It's easy to get wrapped up in this stuff. Then he pointed at the cards and said, But this is how you win. I also love that because scoring happens at the end and depends on which cards you have, it's hard to tell who's winning unless you have a runaway leader. This makes games more exciting, I think because it's rare to look at the board mid-game and realize you have no chance of winning and are just playing it out to see what happens. Everyone feels like they're in it until the end. There are many additional maps available for Concordia, and you can find lists on BoardGameGeek of which maps are considered best for each player count. We have the Britannia-Germania maps, and we always play with Britannia when it's just the two of us. There are also two full expansions, Salsa, which I've played and really enjoyed, and Venus, which I haven't played. Venus adds the ability to play with six people, which I'm not actually sure would be a good idea. Five-player Concordia is already starting to feel a bit out of control, in my opinion. If I had to describe Concordia with one word, it would be elegant. The game just hangs together so well. I wonder sometimes how much effort designer Matt Gertz put into making Concordia feel so effortless. In fact, my only real complaint is how infrequently I get to play it. In the groups I play with, it's hard to get Concordia to the table. I don't for the life of me know why. Maybe it's the cult of the new? Everyone wants to try the new hotness, and a classic like Concordia gets overlooked. Maybe it's the theme? Trading in the Mediterranean is such a common theme that it's a bit of a joke, and colonialism is problematic, even set as this is in ancient Rome. We could play at home more often, just the two of us, but while the Britannia map is great for two players, I do think Concordia is better with more people. There's no direct player interaction in the game, but having more players makes it more unpredictable and makes the competition for cities and cards more challenging. If Concordia had a good solo variant, I could play alone as often as I liked, 
but I've yet to find solo rules that I thought really worked well. But whatever the reason, one of my biggest board game regrets is not playing Concordia more often. Concordia should be the game I play so much the components are wearing out. Instead, it's the best game I never play. And that's Concordia. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of a great Concordia solo variant, then I really want to hear from you. Tis the season for holiday travel, gathering with friends and family, and you know, being that one person who brings a bag of games everywhere you go. My game bag usually consists of new party games that came out in the past year, ones that do well with large groups and are easy to jump into, as well as puzzly, smaller games that travel easily. One such game I often travel with is Number 9, which was previously covered by Catherine in episode 17. Number 9, released in 2017 by Abacus Spiel and Z-Man Games, is designed by Peter Wickman. In this game, you're stacking cardboard numbers on top of each other to score them at the end of the game. Each number is multiplied by which level it's sitting on. What sounds deceptively easy can sometimes be an excruciating 20-minute brain burner, and I mean that in the best possible way. Number 9 has few rules. The game comes with a deck of cards, which contains the numbers 0 to 9 twice. There are large cardboard bits, again the numbers 0 to 9, and each player gets two of each number. The cardboard numbers are geometrically shaped, with gridded lines on it, to make it easy to ensure your numbers are lining up correctly. Because this matters as you start building up, the deck is shuffled and one card is flipped over. You can place this new number side by side next to another one, like puzzle pieces fitting together. If you decide to level up and place this new number on a high level, that number must be sitting on at least two numbers and not have any gaps underneath it. This makes it tricky to place numbers on top of numbers with loops on them. Numbers such as zeros, sixes, eights, and nines. And you can't place the same number on top of itself. Gameplay continues until the entire deck runs out and everyone has placed their zero to nine twice. But as you start building out your number tableau, you'll quickly learn that some numbers fit well together, but that most do not. And you'll have to make tough choices of when to start building up and whether that perfect number you're waiting for will come up in the deck sooner than later so that you can maximize its scoring. And while scoring can be a little complicated, what I tell people is to keep their numbers together based on its level and multiply the points that way. The level touching the table is the zero level, so all those numbers don't score any points. If your fives and nines are on the next level, then each number scores itself. If you manage to get, for example, twos and eights onto that next level, then each two is worth four points, and each eight is worth 16 points. The bottom level is mostly for creating a solid base for which you can place higher value numbers on top of, should the cards come out in your favor. I particularly love the spatial aspect of this game, even though I'm horrible at it. And it's neat to see that even though we're all working with the same exact deck and order of numbers, how everyone's path will diverge with their number placement. There's no interaction among the players in number 9, just a good 20 minutes of everyone staring intently at their beautiful creation or their numerical disaster. Another bonus for number 9 is that it's super portable. I usually just grab the cardboard bits and cards and plop them into a Ziploc bag when I'm traveling. Or if you don't mind traveling with a box, you can cut the inserts in half so that you can actually squeeze in two sets in the box. The more the merrier. You technically could play with an infinite number of players should you acquire extra copies of this game. Number 9 is a fun, quick, short, 
puzzly game that's easy to teach and equally simple for folks to jump into, and a game that most folks would love to play immediately again, so that they can right the wrongs from the first game. Because there's going to be a lot of wrongs. The game isn't color-dependent or language-dependent, because all you're focusing on is numbers. It's a game that you can pretty much play anywhere, and one that puzzle lovers will enjoy. And that's number nine. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. It's hard to believe it's been five years since my favorite zombie game, Dead of Winter, was published. Its theme is so strong that it supports a complex rule set and creates a narrative for each game. Whenever I think of my most memorable gaming experiences, I always think of Dead of Winter. As Stefan from SNL might say, this game has everything. Secret goals and identities, cooperation, backstabbing, story moments, scarcity of resources, risk management, and surprising strokes of luck both good and bad. You can find Stephanie's review in episode 27 to get her take as well. Dead of Winter was published by Plat Hat Games in 2014. It was designed by Jonathan Gilmore and Isaac Vega. The art is by Fernanda Suarez, David Richards, and Peter Woken. Each player in Dead of Winter starts the game controlling two survivors in a zombie apocalypse. You're stationed in a town that has a school, a grocery store, a police station, and other typical locations. The group has a shared win condition that is story-based. You need to achieve that condition within a certain number of rounds in order to win, but each player also has their own secret objective, and one person could be a traitor or betrayer who is secretly working against the group. In addition to this, there is a crisis every round that the group must contend with, contributing scarce resources or facing a consequence. On your turn, your survivors can carry out various actions such as killing a zombie, searching for items, and traveling from place to place. Although Dead of Winter has its share of rules to keep track of, the theme drives a lot of them. For example, if you use a fuel card when traveling, your survivor is driving, which keeps them safe from zombies. If you don't use fuel, you have to roll a d12 to see if anything bad happens as they walk to the location. You have a moderate chance of getting wounded and a 1 in 12 chance of dying, which is shown with a tooth on the die and lowers morale for the entire group. Hopefully none of us will ever experience a zombie apocalypse firsthand, but the suspense of having to roll the tooth die brings that sense of risk to the table. I still haven't forgiven some of my friends for the teeth they've rolled in past games. Although the theme itself is dark and situations can be grim, I appreciate that Dead of Winter does not take itself too seriously. You can have a golden retriever firing a sniper rifle to save a mall Santa, for example. If you can play with a group that gets into the game and loves to have fun, you're going to have a great time with any game, but especially this one. If you want to mix in additional survivors, objectives, and item cards, you can get Dead of Winter The Long Night, which also works as a standalone expansion. There's also the more recent Dead of Winter Warring Colonies, which ups the player count to as many as 11 players, and there are several promo survivors out there in the wild. Speaking of player count, 4 is my favorite for base Dead of Winter. Even with 4, it can get a little long at times, depending on how people are playing. Adding a 5th can make things drag. The game includes crossroad cards, which are story moments that are read to the group when a trigger condition is fulfilled during a player's turn. 
The player, or sometimes the entire group, is sometimes given an option of how to react, which is a fun diversion. However, if your particular game feels like it's moving slowly, the crossroad cards aren't going to help and can even feel tedious at times, since they take you out of the basic gameplay. Dead of Winter does give you a choice between two difficulty levels and three game lengths according to the scenario you choose, short, medium, and long. The short and medium games are long enough that I have never tried any of the long scenarios. I am so appreciative that they thought about this, because game length is virtually always a consideration whenever you're setting something up. I also like that the social deduction aspect is subtle and layered in with a lot of other elements. Games like The Resistance and Coup are too on the nose for my taste, but Dead of Winter incorporates a little bit of that feel without making it the sole focus. If you're not into social deduction at all, you can remove the Betrayer cards and play in cooperative mode only. As Stephanie mentioned in her review, the survivors that come with the game are diverse in many ways, which is really great to see. Fernanda Suarez did a beautiful job on the art. I like the cardboard standees as a full-color alternative to minis. If you want to color code your survivors, I recommend picking up some cheap loom bands at a craft store. It's also fun to get frosted dice for the full winter effect, and there are enough bits in general that a custom insert is helpful. But regardless of how much bling you add, it's still a great time. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at d6cmarie, where I have posted some photo evidence of a past game of Dead of Winter in which our entire five-player group was destroyed in a crushing loss after hours of hard work. Happy Holidays! You've been listening to The Five By, the all-stuff, no-fluff, and just long-enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5 From all of us at The Five By, thanks for listening. The Five By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.